Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Stockman. After taking a week hiatus for America's Independence Day, we're back on our regular bi-weekly schedule. I have more awesome guests and interviews lined up, and I'm very excited to continue learning about so many great sports museums with you all. Today I'm speaking to Jeremy Swick, historian and curator at the College Football Hall of Fame in Atlanta, Georgia. My first podcast guest, Ricardo from the Baseball Heritage Museum, put me in contact with Jeremy after we spoke back in February. The sports museum industry is a small world. I'm happy to talk to Jeremy about his work, especially as college football season gets closer. The College Football Hall of Fame has been around since the 1950s, but their Atlanta facility is only seven years old and is extremely interactive. Be sure to check it out if you're in the Atlanta metro. After my interview with Jeremy, I'll be talking about Hall of Famer Ron Dane during this episode's overtime segment. Stay tuned after our conversation for information about the legendary Wisconsin running back. I hope you enjoy episode 10 of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. Well, today on Hallowed Ground, I'm talking to Jeremy Swick, historian and curator at the College Football Hall of Fame in Atlanta. Jeremy, how are you? I'm doing amazing. How about yourself? Doing well. Thanks for being here. I always like to start with people's backgrounds of the guests that I have and just how their passion for history developed and what did that kind of look like for you as you were growing up and then getting into the museum industry? So originally I'm from Wisconsin. So I grew I grew up, I think, a huge sports fan, especially the Packers. Uh, living in the Milwaukee area, it was always, you know, the Bucks and the Brewers, even though during those time periods, they weren't always uh, some of the best teams. It was always still fun to be so close to the stadiums. And then, of course, a trip to Green Bay is only a couple hours. So I think that's really where my love for sports started. Uh, as far as history, I always remember as a kid going to the Milwaukee Public Museum. And just loving all the, you know, the atmosphere, all the exhibits there. But really what I think got me into more of the museum field is I studied, I got my undergrad and my master's at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, uh, up in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And so my undergrad was in history, education. And so, but I always, you know, I always had that passion. I remember taking, it was a, like an introduction to public history or Museums in the U.S., that's what I believe it was called. And that really started to spark my interest in museums as, you know, another potential career option or career choice. Uh, Even though I did pursue education, I ended up deciding, you know, eventually to go back and get my master's in public history to do museum work. And it actually just worked out that he is now the current curator at the Packers Hall of Fame, Brent he actually graduated from Eau Claire about 10, 10 years prior to when I did. Well, our professors knew that we were both interested in really the same, same field. And he, had, he was out at the Patriots Hall of Fame at that time. And so he actually helped me get the connections to get, the, get my internship at the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which I was able to do in 2016. And that really got me in you know, contact with, all, with the sports museums. Uh, of the of the country and then eventually this opportunity opened up and I was working at a museum up in Minnesota and I ended up moving down here for the College Football Hall of Fame. Awesome yeah Brent's come up in a couple of my episodes I need to have him on because I've talked to his colleague Justine at the Packers Hall of Fame and then when I talked to Brian with the Patriots he also mentioned that Brent used to be with the Patriots so that's cool that that connection just with the like 10 episodes I've done of the podcast exists so I'll have to get Brent on and kind of talk about how how many other people he knows in the industry and how he's now working as the curator at the Packers. So that's pretty cool that you have that that connection for sure. 
definitely definitely i mean it's it's funny how small the how small the sports museums world is uh even when i was going through who was all on your podcast i'm like oh i know them i i've heard of them I'm, oh i remember i remember them so that's that's always fun yeah ricardo from episode one with the baseball heritage museum he he was the one that connected us initially so that's uh it is a small world i'm finding that out definitely as i as i reach out to folks for the podcast so can you talk about like your public history degree and what specifically that means? Uh, because I've, I've heard that more as I look into maybe going to grad school for a topic concerning history or museums and what is public history and can you kind of explain that to us? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. So with public history and my, my background and my degree, fully, I, I studied African-American history primarily as it related to the civil rights movement but really going beyond the, the more traditional MLK, Rosa Parks, you know, mindset and more towards ideas of Black power, Black nationalism, Pan-Africanism, all kind of in the context of the Cold War, looking at U.S. foreign and domestic policy, both, you know, here and uh, internationally. And I just go into that because it was really more for me, for my, my experience in my program, it was more finding about four areas of interest to really study and look at. And public history was the main one. Uh, they did an excellent job at Eau Claire giving us kind of the ability to experience and kind of sample a bunch of different areas we might be interested in because I realized the biggest thing you don't know is what you don't know. So you might, you might love museums or you might love archives, but you really don't know until you've had those experiences, whether it's, uh, you know, touring, We'd work on his, historic preservation and learning how to, you know, write up preservation articles to, uh, you know, justifications to preserve houses in the area. Or it was, you know, learning about the, you know, how, how archives work. It wasn't real. Mine wasn't really more like a, a library science degree, but I ended up working at the archives at the university, the special collections and archives in Eau Claire. And so that's when I really started falling in love. I really do. I love archives. I've learned. Uh, but they also gave us, you know, the experience to create our own exhibit. And so I think the public history for at least in my, in my experience was giving us the wide range of different areas we wanted to focus in. And it was also designed for whether you wanted to go the PhD track uh, to go into academia, or if you wanted to do something within the field itself. Uh, they gave a lot of great opportunity and options for something like that. Yeah, that's nice to have that knowledge where you can go both ways where you can pursue like more higher education and then go teach somewhere be a professor or then do what you did and kind of work in a museum or in the historical industry now so what do you do day to day i'm kind of curious about that as a curator historian you mentioned earlier that you're working on a new exhibit maybe so what's kind of your process day to day so the, the one of the exciting things about this position my day to day is different almost every day but i figured yeah Right now, we, uh, I am in the process of actually going through our archives and, you know, reboxing, giving boxes that aren't in the best quality, giving each artifact a new home. I think you can see in the background, I have a photo studio. So as I go through some of the items, uh, you know, I start taking photographs to really document each, each artifact, you know, note, note areas of condition issues or it's nice to look back, you know, five, 10 years from them. Oh, that, that rip wasn't there when we first took those pictures or when we first got. And so it's kind of, it's a good way to give us a gauge on what, what the conditions of our archives and also our artifacts are. But I also, uh, right now, as I mentioned, I'm working on the new incoming Hall of Fame class uh, exhibit. And so 
right now it's talking to about 32 Hall of Famers because we are combining classes. We're doing the class of 2020 and the class of 2021 together. And so each one's going to have their own kind of little display. But a lot of that is going through our archives and seeing what we have, seeing what we might need. And so either reaching out to the schools and or the players and their families. And so it's funny because everything really starts back here. A lot of times it's me drawing on paper, kind of envisioning what, what, I'm, what I'm thinking and then seeing how, how we can bring that, really bring it to life. Thank you to the Southern Company, but we finished uh, celebrating HBCU's exhibit, which is about four times larger than our past uh, Historically Black College University's exhibit. That was one of, the, one of the things I've been working on the most lately is about 30 unique artifacts. It's digital, which is, which is amazing. And I know we'll go into that later, but uh, having, having that ability, it also gives flexibility. So if we get new items in, instead of having the, the name cards as most people are used to at museums, it's all in the system. So I can easily change out items as we get them. Or if we decide, let's say, let's say these two schools are coming in, I can start adding a few items that normally maybe wouldn't be on display add it right into the system and it looks like they, they've been there forever so it gives them a lot of flexibility okay yeah i wanted to ask you about that because there's so many college football teams i know there's a a helmet wall at the museum that has like seven or eight hundred different teams with the different levels of college football and so how does the the hall of fame handle all that or manage all that because a lot of it sounds digital which is obviously a lot easier to keep track of but there still is a lot so can you kind of speak to just the amount of artifacts in your archive and how you kind of decide what to display definitely definitely so one of the most amazing things about it's about a ninety-five thousand square foot facility and the second you walk in you see a helmet wall with about 775 schools and about 820 helmets not every helmet has a school but it's going from division naia all the way through division one and so it's always fun when people come they sign up and uh, it's one way we use the rfid chips to RFID badges to get their information, detail the uh, experience for them. Uh, so they're allowed to ch- pick whatever school they want as long as it's currently carrying football. And it's always fun to see, you know, a lot of these smaller schools, for example, I went to Eau Claire, a division three football school, to see these people get excited when they see their schools actually represented here. Uh, that might be the only time they see the school itself, but right. uh, as you walk in, you see you, there's a interactive basically giant video wall that it introduces itself to the person once they walk up with their badge and based on the school they chose it'll show content related to that school uh, which is a really you know it's that personal touch uh, experience they get but in regards to how I choose what items to pick a lot of times it's in our temporary space we have themes we do before currently we're doing one on integration uh, before this, it was the kind of the precursor to our permanent HPCU exhibit, uh, which again, you know, a lot of times these, these exhibits start off as a temporary exhibit and it gets traction, exciting, you know, sponsorship, which is always something uh, being a nonprofit that is important to, you know, fund, fund a permanent exhibit. So sometimes they start as temporary ideas and they, they manifest themselves into a more permanent permanent fixture but a lot of times it's sitting down uh, with the team and seeing what we what we think is next some of them are given for example the hall of fame classes uh getting the 2020 and 2021 together uh, just made just made sense but we also have they're about three by three foot cubes 
And those ones rotate probably monthly. Um, whenever someone donates items, I always try to get it on display at least for a month uh, as part of our What's New in the Archives uh, series we do. Uh, it just gives the donors, uh, you know, proof that we actually, we value what, what they are sending us. It's not, it's not just going to be stuck uh, in a closet as a lot of them think uh, forever. But obviously when we get items, we, we can't guarantee it's going to go on permanent display. But we definitely make them known or make it known that we definitely want to, we will display them. And a lot of times it's based on the needs. So we had Coach Dooley uh, from Georgia come in. Um, he was hosting his Dooley Awards. And so we made sure a lot of our Georgia memorabilia was on display in front and center in the quad, even though it might not be there all the time. Uh, just adding those, adding those touches uh, to give people that personal experience. And of course, uh, for me, sometimes it's things I'm interested in. So I collect a lot of sports cards and we were able to get a co nearly complete 1955 Topps All-American set. Um, it was a hundred card set and 79 of the possible 88 were signed. Wow. And so things like that, I mean, it's, it's, it's fun because it's my own interest too. So a lot of times that that's how some of these are, some of the displays go on display. It's like, oh, we haven't talked about cards in a while, so let's uh let's pull something up yeah i know i've collected sports cards forever too so that's that'd be really cool especially to get a almost complete set like that and have them autographed that's that's really cool because i love how the museum is super interactive but then you also have like those tactile elements like the helmets like the sports cards that people can see themselves not just on a screen so what's kind of that balance between the digital side of things and then the actual archives themselves and the artifacts? Yeah. So we, we definitely are more geared towards a digital and interactive interface uh, from being able to sing your fight songs with our fight song karaoke. But there's also with the digital, as you mentioned, that there's that tactile experience too. Uh, you can sit down at the game day desk and you can uh, virtually put on the mascot you think is going to win the game. Uh, so it's a lot of those items where it is digital, but around it is the tactile artifacts. And one of those things is obviously not everyone gets to come back in the archives, but uh, I wish some more people could just because of the amount of items we have on display that aren't, aren't visually shown. So a lot of times uh, we, I work closely with our social media team to have that, those items go on display, even though, even though it might be in a, a digital format. Yeah. What are some of the ways that the Hall of Fame utilizes social media for preservation or just kind of, I like how you said that you're, you're getting more items on display, even if it's in a digital or social media sense. So what does that look like at the Hall of Fame? Yeah. So our social media team, we're doing an amazing job uh, at really capturing not only what goes on in the building for potential, you know, new visitors, new customers, uh, but highlighting our Hall of Famers and really giving giving them uh, their dues because with how large our Hall of Fame collection is, or uh, members, I should say, uh, not every name is a household name. So sometimes it's pulling those guys that are a little bit either more obscure, maybe went to a smaller school that their, their school knows them, but maybe not, not everyone does. So finding ways to highlight them. And then of course the artifacts we get in as we work on this new exhibit, we'll see, you'll see teasers on our, on our social media channels of the exhibit kind of being created. Uh, people really like, we always put a, we try to put a GoPro inside the temporary space. So as we're changing it out, people can kind of see the, the work that goes into creating exhibit because I've realized a lot of people see the finished product and it takes a couple days in, in theory, but really it's usually months or if not years in the making. 
to execute a, a successful exhibit. So uh, that's one of the ways I really like how we use social media. Uh, just to highlight, you know, of course, just stay relevant within the landscape of college football. And one of the newer, newer things that since I've been here, what I've started to do is a lot of times when we have a record setter or a, a player in the news, sometimes we use our Hall of Fame account and we'll reach out to those players directly and say, hey, we heard you set that record or, hey, you're having a great season. We would love for the school to send us one of your jerseys to put on display here. And I've realized uh, with this younger generation of players, it works. It works extremely well uh, because maybe they don't, they don't have the, the say in the, who's sending it out, but they'll talk directly to the equipment manager and say, hey, I would love this. They reached out to me. Can you, can you send this out? And, you know, nine times out of ten, two weeks later, we get, we get jerseys. We get the memorabilia we're asking. Uh, we did that especially with Jackson He, uh, who was one of the first Chinese-born players from Arizona State. He was not the, not the first Chinese player, but he was the first to have his Chinese name on the back of his jersey. And so I just thought it was a really cool story. And I'm always big on, you know, increasing representation with a wide variety of how, how diverse the cultural landscape has become. Um, and so we reached out to him and, you know, two weeks later, we get the jersey, we get the, we get the pants, we get the, the helmet. That's uh, that's really cool that you guys are emphasizing that representation because college football is played all over the country by a diverse group of people. I love how the new um, HBCU exhibit is permanent. So like they, their stories can be told because I feel like they've been under told throughout like my, my childhood and just throughout history. So it's, I think it's great. The hall of fame is preserving those stories and kind of using those to teach people. So what are some of the ways that the Hall of Fame like has educational programs or like specific kind of intentional ways that they teach kids or field trips or different groups that come in? So we have an excellent STEM curriculum and I know we are in the process of working on almost like a social justice curriculum. Hmm. And it's, it's one of those things where when schools or teachers reach out that our, our team, our, our sales team has you know, a great, uh, great toolkit to show the actual value, educational value um, at the Hall of Fame. And I think it, I think it's relieving and a little surprising sometimes for some teachers uh, because they see the Hall of Fame, they see the advertisement of our, we have a 45, 50 yard football field where, you know, you can kick, run passes and do plays. Uh, but there's also a great educational aspect to learning more about college football and just how, how it works and uh, the importance in the educational background and just the emphasis on all these students, they're student athletes uh, at the end of the day. Right. And so that's one of those areas where I think we excel and I'm excited to see, uh, see what, what the future has in, in store for us. Yeah. There's a lot of curriculum behind these museums. And that's something I've realized when talking to different staff members from them is like, they're very intentional about, Hey, if kids are going to come here, or even adults, they can still learn things. And so there has to be this like curriculum behind it and these standards and kind of learning outcomes like there would be in a school. So I think that's kind of cool that museums and hall of fames are kind of using their power and like their influence because it's a huge museum, really new and technologically friendly, but then you can also go play football, but there's still that also educational component too, which I just think is, is really neat. Definitely. And with, uh, with my background in education, it's one of the things that really speaks to me is, okay, what are the standards? Because I know right away as a teacher, you, know, you go into that mindset, all right, if I'm going to justify this field trip, 
I need to show the standards. I need to, you know, kind of prove that this isn't just us going to a football field to run around and blow off some steam. And although sometimes I think the kids think that they, they quickly realize uh, that, that they're going to have to learn a, learn a little bit. But one of the things I really think we pride ourselves on is making things historically fun. Sometimes I think history gets a, you know, a bad name where it's, it's that boring, you know, 10 years ago on this day, you know, uh, whereas you can really make it relevant and fun and it helps obviously that it's college football. I've worked at, you know, several different museums, uh, including a historic county museum, but also a historic photography museum in the Wisconsin Dells, which was for me a lot of fun. I learned how to do wet plate photography. I learned, uh, you know, how to, how to do tintypes and even, even something like that, that was more of a community type museum. But when people got in, they learned so much about their local history that again, it made it historically fun, even though maybe they had a different mindset going into the actual exhibit and for us, uh, the actual attraction that uh, it is historically fun. And one of my favorite things is sometimes you'll see these kids come back later with their parents and they're, they're running around telling, hey, did you know why this happened or this happened? And, uh, you know, a lot of times the same the same staff is working, so they'll, they'll go up and talk to them and uh, we have a we have a great uh, great man. He works here. His name's uh, Mr. Terry LeCount. Uh, he does a, he does amazing work with the kids. Uh, he actually uh, he played for the Vikings in San Francisco in the NFL and has made his way back here and pretty much gets to uh, work at worker college football all the time. Work with students all the time, but they're all super uh, super excited to meet him. And he's actually featured in our current exhibit. He was the second African American quarterback at Florida. And so again, you know, that representation and really just trying to tie it, tie it together where I think a lot of times with history, people think, people think it happened so long ago when a lot of times, especially with things like integration aspects like that, it really wasn't, wasn't that long ago, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on, you know, how you, how you look at it, but uh, it's a good reminder. A lot of these people are here, they're still around and uh, that there's a, a good memory of that, a lot of these guys in our integration exhibit were able to come through and kind of meet and greet as, as they talked about their experiences and, and you know, what, what was going on during, during their playing time. You know, something like that is, you know, it's invaluable to have people in exhibits actually talk about their experiences. Yeah. And I love that phrase, historically fun, because some people, they aren't like us because me and you, Jeremy, we seem like we just have always loved history, probably a big reader. That's how I started to love history too, was by reading a lot and then you go into these museums, but then some folks, they just aren't wired that way. They have other interests, but then they come in and then they still have a fun time. And then I love how they like drag their parents back to the hall of fame. And then they say, Hey, I know some of this stuff and you can kind of have the kids teach their parents, which is kind of cool. So, and you kind of answered one of my other questions was like, why do you find the work that you do important? And it sounds like that just kind of teaching people about uh, maybe stories that haven't been told or just utilizing some of those components where you're just educating communities about their history. Like, do you have anything else to add on why your work is important at the College Football Hall of Fame? I said the biggest thing for me and what, what it really brings value is you mentioned that education aspect. Uh, sometimes I feel like the teacher never really left uh, left me. I just found, you know, a different channel to uh get out that get out that teaching energy uh right but seeing kids and seeing parents make that connection um and i have a, a story uh his name is james reed he was uh one of the first with uh ben williams who unfortunately is no longer with us to integrate at old miss uh in mississippi but he was able to come through 
uh, did the meet and greet. Uh, we, we had this one guy come in, big, tall, you know, uh, white guy, and came in and like, he just was like, you could tell he wanted to talk to him, but he was talking out that finally came up to him. And he had grown up in Mississippi and this guy was his hero. Um, his uncle and I think his father had all, they had all played at Ole Miss around a little before, but he had grown up a huge Ole Miss fan. And obviously everyone knew he was one of the first, he was the first African-American running back for, for Ole Miss. And uh, to hear him talk and just have that, you know, there's such a personal connection and, you know, 30, 40 years later, this, I mean, it's two, you know, two grown men near tears. Um, and so what I did is I went and got one of our autographed footballs and had him sign it for him. And to see that connection with, you know, history and all, you know, everything we've talked about, uh, it's one of those moments that really kind of makes things, makes, you know, you don't think about it at the time while you're working on an exhibit for months and months at a time, but it's little moments like that that really make it, you know, worth it. Yeah, because like you said, there's a lot of time and energy and resources and staff that go into making an exhibit. And then you have people that probably coordinate the the players and bringing them in if they are able to. And then all of those can help make those personal connections. And that's a really great story. Thank you for, for sharing that. That's a, that's a really neat one where they're going back 40, 50 years and they're still, yeah, near tears, like you said, because it's so emotional bringing the memories back of their family being Ole Miss fans and then um, you have um, some racial components as well with a lot of the integrational aspects. So yeah, that's awesome. Do you have a favorite artifact at the museum or just something that you mentioned you're a big sports cards guy. So that might be your favorite exhibit, any, but any like favorite artifacts you want to talk about? Yes. Yeah, so I, I have a couple. It's uh, it's tough to pick favorites, but I think at this point I've done it. We have Ron Dane's helmet um, and being from Wisconsin, he was one of the first guys I grew up, you know, seven, eight, nine watching Wisconsin, great Dane, you know, drag people down the field was uh, one, one of my fav- favorite experiences. And so we have his helmet and a couple of his jerseys and, uh, you know, his cleats as well. So uh, that kind of that whole, you know, ensemble, but it definitely, for me, it's probably the sports cards, uh, the 1955, which were all signed. And then we also have a 1948 to 52 set that is uh, signed. And I mean, with cards that old, you know, 80, 90 years old, I, it's just amazing to see one, the condition that these were in, but uh, it was one of those ways that interesting ways we get donations. As I mentioned, you know, we reach out to players in schools and sometimes it's people reaching out to us. And this was one of those things where he reached out to, or someone on behalf of him reached out, lived in the Bronx his whole life. And he actually collected these as a kid. Uh, he just happened to grow up, you know, two, three blocks from Yankee stadium. And so him and his dad on, you know, days after work or school, they'd go and get autographs. He realized that he couldn't get the, the home team players. So he'd go on the side and get the visitors. Uh, he did his baseball cards and donated his collection to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And we're talking guys like Jackie Robinson, you know, Roberto Clemente, all, all signed cards. And he did the same thing with the professionals. And so I think the one, the set he donated, it was 53 cards and 50 of them were autographed. Um, and like I said, I don't, I don't tell people I'm going to put their stuff on display permanently, but uh, I'll be honest with those 55 cards. I told them, oh, I'm going to find a way. I'm not sure where, but this, these will go on display. Um, and luckily they're on the second floor, right when you get off the elevator. And it's kind of one of those fun things because even if you don't know anything about sports cards at all, just the art itself attracts people. Right. But then the people that do know a little more, they get really excited because they start to realize, oh, how many of these are signed and 
oh, you guys are only missing five. Uh, and so I've actually been able to get a few more of the ones we had been missing previously by people seeing it and then donating. Oh, hey, you know, I have this part of my set. It's not complete, but would you like this card or something like that? Wow. And so uh, that's one of the exciting ways of uh, getting donations. I recently got uh, Tony Dorsett's shoulder pads um, from his college days because a guy reached out to me on Instagram and we were talking, you know, talking back and forth. And then, you know, a little bit later, uh, same thing with uh, Amos Alonzo Steg signed uh, signed a letter that he had, this guy, Steg had written back to his, uh, this man's grandmother, I believe, discussing the forward pass. And, it, you know, it's beautifully just written out and hand signed and, it's always fun to find new ways to get artifacts. Yeah, because that that's utilizing the the newest form of communication and social media. But then you also have like these eighty or ninety year old artifacts, and then kind of coming coming together that way in a in a donation to the Hall of Fame. That's really kind of unique. Where it's kind of the best of both the old and the new. So that's uh that's really neat. I wanted to kind of maybe wrap up a little bit by talking about the pandemic and how the museum has kind of maybe learned from the pandemic and maybe going even more digital. I'm not sure what that has looked like for you guys down in Atlanta, but can you kind of talk about maybe some new things that people can look forward to at the Hall of Fame after they come back? Yeah, now that now that we're open, you know, it's amazing. We're open six days a week. We're closed on Tuesdays. But other than that, it, it's just been great to reopen. And the biggest thing is, and I encourage everyone, if you're in Atlanta or come to Atlanta, is come check out our new HBCU exhibit. It has the stories. And one of the things, as I mentioned, you can just go deep. You can go deep as you want to, uh, you know, deep, deep digital dive, if you will. Uh, not only the history of HBCUs, but the origins of football, er, early African-American football. Of course, no HBCUs would be complete without their bands. So I've run, run a little something on pretty much every band. I pretty, I'm pretty sure I got them all. And I, I'm sure if I didn't, I'll, I'll, be, uh, I'll be notified by our, our former alumni, I'm sure. Uh, but really, really taking the time to go through that and learning about that aspect of history, uh, especially if you're not as familiar and again, thank you to Southern Company, uh, really helping us get this, turning this, you know, this dream I've had uh, into, into a reality. But uh, that, that would be the biggest one. And then, of course, we're always continuing to update and, uh, you know, give life to our, our new, new artifacts and new exhibits. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jeremy. This has been an awesome conversation. I really appreciate your time. And can you talk about where people can find the Hall of Fame, whether in person or online? Yes. So, of course, we're, we're located downtown Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia, right across from Centennial Park uh, near the, you know, the CNN State Farm Center. So it's all it's all right, right there. Of course, to purchase tickets, you can go to CFBHall.com and it'll take you right to the tickets. And of course, on social media, we are at CFB Hall on pretty much everything. Um, and so that's, you know, just a great way to connect with us. Uh, you might even talk to me sometimes, you know, I, I always try to jump on and interact with fans as well. Awesome. Well, this has been a great conversation, especially as we near college football season come August and September. So I'm really excited to follow more about the College Football Hall of Fame um, down in Atlanta. And if I'm ever down that way, I'll be sure to stop by and check it out. So thank you again, Jeremy. And we'll I'll have you back maybe after the college football season's over, we can kind of talk about some of the, the players and the highlights from this upcoming season. I look forward to it. Thank you again. Yeah, thank you. There's so many teams and Hall of Famers honored at the College Football Hall of Fame, it took me a little bit to think of who to feature during this episode's overtime segment. 
But when I listened to Jeremy talk about his favorite artifacts, including Ron Dane's uniform from his famed Wisconsin career, I had to feature Jeremy's favorite childhood player. I'm too young to remember Dane's college career, so I had a lot of fun researching this college football legend. Ron Dane was born March 14, 1978 in Berlin, New Jersey. He was a highly decorated high school athlete at Overbrook High School in Pine Hill, New Jersey, where he excelled in both football and track. He won state titles in 1996, not in sprints, as you might expect for a running back, but in the field events of discus and shot put. You can still find his high school discus mark of over 216 feet in record books today. From there, Ron went to the University of Wisconsin and made an immediate impact, rushing for over 2,000 yards as a freshman, including UW's bull win over Utah. Ron was a big running back at over 250 pounds during his college days. This led to him being known as the Great Dane and Dane Train, two all-time nicknames in my opinion. Dane played for a fellow College Football Hall of Famer and coach Barry Alvarez, who coached at UW through the 2005 season and just retired from his athletic director role in June 2021. Dane's senior season was one for the ages. He won the 1999 Heisman Trophy in a landslide, beating out the likes of Michael Vick and Drew Brees. Ron topped the 2,000-yard mark for the second time in his career in 1999, averaging 6 yards per rushing attempt and scoring 20 touchdowns. And oh yeah, the Badgers finished 10-2 that season, ranking 4th overall in the final AP poll after beating Stanford in the Rose Bowl, where Dane won MVP. Ron was drafted 11th overall by the New York Giants in the 2000 NFL Draft. He played in the Super Bowl his rookie season and also played for the Broncos and Texans before retiring in 2007. Ron still leads all college football players in career rushing yards, and is the only one to top 7,000 yards when bowl games are included. Ron Dane was inducted into the University of Wisconsin Athletics Hall of Fame in 2009, the Rose Bowl Hall of Fame in 2011, and the College Football Hall of Fame in 2013. What an awesome career. You can find the College Football Hall of Fame online at cfbhall.com or in Atlanta, Georgia, right across from Centennial Olympic Park in the heart of the city. Look in this episode's show notes for the Hall of Fame's website and social media pages. I appreciate Jeremy coming on the pod. I hope you enjoyed episode 10 of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. Please leave Hallowed Ground a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It definitely helps us gain exposure on that platform. Thanks in advance. I'll see you next time, sports fans.